Hi, I'm Kira Gorman and you're listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. You can find us at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify and iTunes. Welcome to this month's Researcher Spotlight. The second episode of every month is dedicated to telling the research story of a PhD student whose work relates to our theme of the month, in this case, mental health. Last week, you heard me talking to Dr. Lisa Bunting and Dr. Paul Best from the School of Social Science, Education and Social Work here at QUB. Lisa gave us an overview of mental health, what it is, how mental ill health manifests and what factors can contribute to the positive or negative development of mental health in young people. Paul talked to us about how we treat mental ill health and the fascinating ways that modern technology can be utilised to treat conditions like anxiety and PTSD. Today, we're turning our attention to, to perhaps one of the oldest forms of working through trauma and loss, that is to say, writing and talking about it. I'll be speaking to PhD student Jordan McCulloch about narratives of grief and bereavement and how literature can help us process difficult events in our lives. These are sensitive and topical issues, especially in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Everyone is grieving in one way or another right now, and millions of people are suffering bereavement, maybe multiple losses, maybe for the first time. Leaving grief unaddressed can really affect your mental health. And so if you've been affected by any of the issues that we'll be talking about in this episode, please reach out to a support service. You can find links to these in the show notes. Jordan, it's lovely to have you on QUB Voices. Um, would you like to kick us off by introducing yourself and telling me a little bit about your research? Thank you so much for um, having me. So yes, my name is Jordan McCulloch and I'm a second year PhD student in French at Queen's. Um, my research focuses on parental grief narratives. So I look at um, the ways in which writing can help parents to um, work through grief. I wouldn't say to, to overcome it, but to, to learn to live with it, to process it and um, in some ways, actually, to continue to have some level of connection with a deceased child. And hopefully we'll maybe talk about that as we go along. Yeah, definitely. It's, a, you know, I'm sure our listeners are probably thinking, oh, my God, that sounds a lot sadder than I was expecting from this episode. But it's such an important topic, isn't it, really? Because, you know, in the news lately, of course, there's um, Meghan Markle sharing her story of miscarriage. And then previously we had um, Chrissy Teigen sharing her story of baby loss. And it's often such a taboo topic, isn't it? You know, losing a child and it can really have um, such such massive ramifications for uh, the couple involved and, and their wider families. And it's something I think that maybe we don't talk about enough. Um you know, and if you don't talk about it, I'm sure it's very hard to, to deal with it in a productive and healthy kind of way. So you must read a lot of, I suppose, quite harrowing stories. Um, you know, what? it's funny because so many people say this. And um, <laughs> actually, whenever I started working on this topic, a lot of staff, even at Queen's, were um, a bit anxious. They wondered how I would cope with it if it was, mm. yeah, if it was really feasible for a three year long study. Um 
But actually, the stories aren't as harrowing as you think. And very often, um, the motivation is less to focus on the death and the absence and the loss, but actually to, as I mentioned a second ago, to think about that connection, but also to um, to engage in a process that helps the parents to remember. Um, and so in some ways it is, it's a form of memorialization. In, in other ways, it's about um, retaining identity and, and keeping the child alive through the text. They continue to have um, that, that they're able to utter, the parents are able to utter their name um, which is a big thing that's that's often hushed mm-hmm. up. I think when someone passes away, there's a, a taboo around still using the person's name quite often, yeah. you know, of referring to them directly. So, um, yeah, it's not quite so bad as you think. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's nice to feel like actually by doing some literary research, we can make some level of impact on the on the world around us. Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting. I'm go- I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I, I'm actually. I'm actually interested to hear that other colleagues of, of ours in the the French department um, were kind of wondering about the, the feasibility of doing such a, an intense and, and I suppose tragedy focused um, research work over quite a, period, a long period of time. And I think that uh, reflects the fact that research can be really difficult. Um, sometimes there's a lot of hard work for very little reward in the short term, right? Especially right now, I think when so many of us are feeling isolated from each other and disconnected from our research and from our communities and things like that and you know how did you end up here like how did you choose the path of doing a research degree yeah yeah, it's quite funny I never imagined ever that I would end up sitting (laughs) where I am now ever um aside from the topic which is maybe a whole other question but um actually sitting doing a PhD now is yeah somewhere I never imagined I would get to so my intention was to to do my undergrad degree and to go and do a PGC and become a language teacher and I love the teaching side of things I'm still involved in schools and so yeah that was always my my aim I think and then um when I came to final year I uh I did a module with Stephen Wilson who well he works on primarily medical humanities topics but the module wasn't mm-hmm. medical humanities based it's slightly mm-hmm. different but um he uh he kind of got me thinking a little bit about possibilities after undergrad um and so i started i did a an mres so a masters of research in um well it's arts and humanities but specifically in french lit right and um my focus there was on um palliative care so end of life care um and narratives of both patients and families who have, have gone through that experience and i suppose in a sense then the what i'm working on now is an extension of that um yeah. but it also uh yeah i think it also draws in a lot of personal experience so um i'm i'm married to a, a hospice nurse a children's mm-hmm. hospice nurse and um that was completely unintentional i mean whenever i started working on this topic that that we weren't like we weren't married like sophie hadn't even started her um i'm trying to think yeah she had sorry that's a lie she had started her <laughs> job um but uh yeah, so I think it's interesting to see how these interests kind of overlap and how I can almost see that relevance in um, what she's doing in everyday life uh, as well. Yeah, there's such an unexpected convergence there of of like mm. interests and work and career and, and things. And, you know, it, I suppose it brings another dimension to when you guys talk about work, because I suppose you might be talking about perhaps the theoretical side of um, moving through care and grief and loss and stuff. And, and Sophie's working with the realities of it every day. And it must be really interesting to see how those two things combine. Yeah, yeah, it is actually. And I think I think that's the thing that motivates me to do this PhD is actually that I feel at least, others might disagree, but I feel I'm not doing research for research's sake. Um, I see a practical outworking of that through the, the kind of focus, the lens of medical humanities um, that might actually have some impact on care. And um, 
yeah, I've already seen that to some extent with uh, different placements and things that, that I've been able to do. So yeah, I think uh, it's really nice to have, as you say, a theoretical side, but I, I don't even maybe think about it so much as theory as actually just stories, being able to share people's stories. And so um, what I do is, is read those stories and engage with them uh, yeah, from the perspective of a reader, rather Sophie's hearing and living them on a daily basis. So there's, um, but there is definitely a level of connection between um, what we say and how we speak about um, loss and grief, um, death and dying generally, and then how we write about it as well. Mm. That's really interesting. Before I, I go back to that, I wonder, can you tell me a little bit more about your placements? Because um, I know you were one of the last people to get out of the country <laughs> before the coronavirus pandemic um, kept us all at home. Um, and you were you spent a little time in France on, on placement in a, in a hospice, isn't that right? Um, yeah, it was, so it's uh, it was actually a pediatric, pediatric palliative care unit, sorry, um, right. in, uh, in Brittany. Because uh, in France, the kind of idea of hospice is uh, it's it's a bit taboo. So the without going too much into the language, there are quite a lot of negative connotations with um, the word hospice in French. Um, so they, they don't really tend to talk about that. So they talk about palliative care units um, or palliative care teams. Mm. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I was on placement with the team in Brittany for a short period of time. And while I was there, I got to, to meet different parents who had been through this experience. And in some ways I got to to see if the things I was finding from the written narratives actually were true in their lives. And if we could, to some extent, uh, it's obviously limited how much you can ever extrapolate these things out because the experience is so unique. Um, yeah. But to see, to, to some extent, how these uh, trends that we see in the literature actually are, are playing out in everyday life in, in the French context, but I think wider than that as well. Yeah, what what are those trends? Um. Well, I think so. you mentioned one earlier on, the idea of, of death being evacuated from society, of being pushed to the margins. I mean, I think think of the, the, the head of the team. So she was a she was a non-medical member, but she was the they had kind of a joint directorate, if you like. So a medical head and a, a, an admin slash um, or operational head. Right. So she comes from the same background as us, actually. So she did a literary PhD in English and um, then ended up going traveling around the world a little bit with uh, a surgeon, a pediatric, sorry, yeah, a pediatric oncologist he was, sorry, not a surgeon. All right, okay. And um, basically through that, she kind of came to France and met her husband and settled, but then ended up working in palliative care herself. Um, and just, yeah, sorry, that's a bit of a long-winded way to say that. But um, anyway, she, she ended up in this world. And when we were chatting one day, she would say to me, well, actually, whenever I go to the school gate to pick up my kids, I won't tell anybody that this is what I do. You know, I won't mention that I head up really? a palliative care unit because people don't know how to engage with that. People would just kind of look at her or they would move away from her. Um, the same with the parents that I met. Uh, it's very difficult for them to know how to to engage with someone who hasn't been through this experience. You know, I think even on a, on a basic level, um, I met one mum who had uh, three children um, and, and even I've just said it, so she had three children. So one of them died. So does she have three children? Did she, did she have three children? How does she speak about that child that's passed away? Um, and I think it's very, very difficult for us to comprehend it on one level because it's so unthinkable and it goes against, child loss goes against so much of what we think of as a, the natural order of life. But actually there's also a, a fear in a lot of, and one of what the parents talk about, a fear of almost contamination, this idea that somehow by you engaging with this person and by getting alongside them, then uh, I don't know. It's, it sounds a bit silly. It's a silly idea to think of how we can be contaminated by someone else. But there is a fear of that. And I think there's something very particular about uh, death and dying in the French context that maybe seems a little bit alien to us, perhaps, especially in Ireland, I would say, because um, 
to a level anyway we have much more of an openness about that um, and, and the wake for example is much a, a wider part of our culture and that wouldn't be the case in France. So. That's that's so true and actually just just literally before you said oh you know about the wake I was thinking to myself yeah actually you know we do have really lovely traditions um, around how we say goodbye to people and how we memorialize them and, and mark their passing. Um, I think that's maybe one of the most difficult things is that you know, you we might be able to mark the the person's passing, but then it's very hard to talk about that afterwards. And it's very hard to know, like, when is appropriate to talk about your grief and your bereavement. Um, I think there's enormous pressure on people to kind of get get over what, what an awful <laughs> phrase, but to get over grief and loss quickly. Um, mm. You know, I think it's certainly in my own experience that that's definitely not how I have lived it. Like it has become a part of me. Um, there was a time before my loss and, and there was a time afterwards and afterwards the, the loss has become a part of how I move in my in the world every day. And there's nothing um, there's nothing that can can erase it from me. Time is not really a, the great healer that it has always led us to that. We've always been led to believe that it is, I suppose. And I think for many people, they might feel rushed into finishing the grieving period, you know, and it's, it must be very hard, especially for well, for anybody, but especially when you've lost a child. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think um, it really comes back to some very entrenched ideas that we have about grief that um, will really date back to Freud, I would say, you know, the idea of severing ties with a lost loved one and moving on, you know, how uh, grief can develop supposedly in an unnatural way if you dwell on it for too long and you become can become sick and all of the treatments that were developed for melancholia and all of these ideas that, mm. that date way back to the, the early 20th century. And I think... Um, society's attitudes towards death and dying and grief haven't really moved on much past that. I mean, it's taken until, well, the late 1990s, really, whenever um, new models of grief, such as continuing bonds, which is the model that I would work with um, in my research um, in terms of literary representations of grief, um, that, that, yeah, that only really emerged back in the, the late 90s. And so in, in recent years, let's say, well, 2018, I think, was the most recent um, updated version of that, that model um, that emerged. But yeah, I, do, I just think that we, we I, don't, I don't really know where it's come from. It's, it's interesting. I just find it absolutely fascinating that we kind of moved on in so many ways and, and developed as a society, but actually um, how we think about and speak about and engage with um, death and grief, um, I just I just haven't, you know, and we just still think this it's this phase of life that we go through and try and get through as quickly as possible and, and move on, as you say. But um Actually, it is. It's, it's always part of us. Um, and I think that's it's from that root cause, that idea of grief always being at, at the heart of us and an element of who we are from the point of loss onwards that actually fuels so much of the writing that I look at. Mm. And uh, you're quite right, as you say, they're like, you know, um, rushing through grief or unworked through grief can have such a, a host of devastating consequences, you know. And people are more prone to developing depression or anxiety or, you know, developing, for example, complex PTSD. If you, you have experienced grief or loss in a, in a traumatic situation and, and you don't, I suppose, you know, work through it in, in a constructive and healthy way. And, um, you know, there's it's such a complex topic that really doesn't get enough like kind of public attention. I think we're afraid of it. I think we're afraid to see other people upset and mourning and it's like you were saying earlier about um that lady who doesn't share the kind of work that she does with other people i think it's because you know we're not really sure how to deal with somebody who's so close to 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 the workings of death and dying all of the time you know i think we're we're afraid of coming that close to the void yeah i think yeah i think you're absolutely right actually um and 
it's even it's even interesting what you said there. So how we work through grief in a healthy way, and I think that potentially is part of the problem. Like, what what does that mean? What is healthy grief? Why why do we have an idea that someone? And I'm not necessarily saying this towards you, but I just mean in general. You know, why do we have this idea that someone who approaches their grief in a different way from what might be the norm or what we might expect of them somehow that's unhealthy? That quite right. And that's exactly what's right for them. Um, and I think. Yeah, I think that is one of the, the issues that we have, um, that it's so individual as well. So maybe, perhaps I'm being too too harsh on society and, and people in general, but actually it's such an individual experience that maybe we, we struggle to engage with it. Um, it's difficult to, you know, this idea of put yourself in someone else's shoes. Well, actually, especially, well, in grief in general, but especially in the case of child loss that, that I work on, even um, in a couple, so in a mother and father who mm-hmm. are both parents to this child, so often they have such entirely different experiences of the loss that they just can't share it you know they, they can't engage in each other's experience even within the most what might be considered the most intimate of human relationships um and so yeah so i, I think it's about really breaking down so many of those uh, preconceived ideas and categories and models and just allowing that individuality to come through the, the singularity really of the experience that's totally fascinating and how does that manifest in the literature that you read like so for example in the example you've just given us there for that couple, do they write two different books or do they write two different, completely different narratives? Like, how does that work out? Um, so that's actually the, the topic of a chapter I've just finished. Um, so that's quite a nice, a nice oh, way excellent. into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the so that chapter was based on four different texts. So um, two of which are single authored narratives by um, one by the mother and one by the father of the same child. And the other two are supposedly co-authored narratives. So they that's what they brand themselves as. But actually, when you look inside those texts, they're arranged in alternating chapters. They've been put together by an editor. I mean, one of them really shocked me by this. It gets, you get to the end of the text and there's a, a little note, you know, thank you so much to the editor who brought our two stories together. And that opens up mm-hmm. all kinds of questions about, you know, um, um, the ethics of that and how much of it is the editor, how much is it of it is the parents. But I think th- the biggest thing for me that I took from that was that um, actually they couldn't they couldn't share their stories almost without this intermediary. Um, and I think that um, brings, well, I see at least a, a comparison there with grief share groups, let's say, um, okay. where someone might go for, I'm thinking of a few that I know of in terms of parental grief. So where parents go along, the couple will go together um, and they share with other parents who are in a similar situation. But there's always the yeah, the, the kind of group leader, let's say the counsellor or the, the therapist of some sort who actually helps to bridge that gap um, and to, to bring the two stories into dialogue in a way that perhaps people would struggle to do by themselves. Um, and I think the other issue there as well, particularly um, in that intimate relationship, is that um, perhaps for the first time, each party in the couple it isn't really able to support the, the other because they're both going through exactly, um, the, so not the same experience, but the same depth of emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there are, there's a lot of, of references to that in the text where maybe for the first time in their life, the the man wasn't able to be there for for his wife because he was in bits or vice versa and um i think in those kind of contexts very often those narratives emerge as a means of i have to be careful of that because i wouldn't necessarily say it's self-care because there's a whole kind of um yeah other aspect to that but <laughs> um the uh yeah, I think I think that's the, the biggest the biggest thing really is this idea of it being completely separate, the narrative resulting being separate because we just struggle so much to engage in another's experience and to support each other because we're both in exactly that same difficult place. Mm. I love that you brought up actually like parental parental grief support groups. Um, I love the idea of a support group for grief because I think 
um, sometimes it can be a really lonely experience and it can be difficult to talk about it with our friends perhaps, but maybe it's easier for to talk about it with strangers, you know, for people who are going through a similar kind of loss or experience. Maybe it's paradoxically easier to be more vulnerable with people that you don't know. I think I think quite often it is, but I think that the thing that unites all of those individuals in that particular type of group where it's the same form of grief as in the loss of a child is that they've all been through that same experience. Now that's not to say, as I keep saying, that the experience, the individual experience is the same, but it's mm. the same loss. The form of loss is the same. Um, and I think the the nature of the parent-child relationship is such that to really be able to enter into that that, that dialogue and that sharing of stories and of experiences, you need to be, you need to have been through it. You know, you need to be on the other side of that to be able to fully appreciate just the the complete rupture and shaking of identity. I mean, that was something that I hadn't really ever thought about before I started to mm. work on this project. The idea that um, particularly in the case of parents who have one child, when they lose that child, well, they're not mom or dad anymore because yeah. they haven't got a child to call them that. So what are they now? And um, that element of them is just kind of torn away. And so someone who's been through that experience can, can engage with that, you know, can, can meaningfully speak into that context in a way that, that I never could, you know, no matter how yeah, many, how many narratives I read or how much theory I get into or um, how much I try and educate myself and, and, and empathize and, and show as much compassion as possible. I can, I can never know what that's like unless I've been through it. There's something really powerful and, um, empathetic in listening and, and hearing other people's stories and being able to share your own and come to a, a kind of commonplace of meeting. Like I've had the the pleasure and the privilege um, of being able to read some of your work, you know, articles that you've written on the topics of grief and dying and, and what it means to die well and to mourn well. And you treat these subjects with such empathy and thoughtfulness that it's it's really, really striking. And being able to talk to you, an expert, <laughs> um, about grief and losses really helped me to work through my own grief, you know, after losing my grandparents in the last two years. And it's made me feel comforted and less lost in my grief, I think, you know, and I suppose I'm wondering how has your way of thinking or understanding the world or everyday life even, you know, been affected or changed by your research so far? Um. Well, I think actually probably I should go back to um, an earlier question. You asked me about how I ended up on this project. And I think I didn't really, well, I have thought about it before this precise moment, but I hadn't really appreciated <laughs> it until um, till quite recently, really, in that. Um, so when I was sitting my finals, I lost my granddad. And then when I was um, finishing my master's dissertation, then I lost uh, my nanny at that stage. And I think actually those those things kind of all were boiling away inside me. Um, and I hadn't really realized that. And in a sense, that's kind of drawn me towards this project in a way that I hadn't fully appreciated, actually, until I was in France, until I was in the palliative care unit and um, heard other people sharing these stories. And I thought, but th that level, you know, at one level, I could totally get it. As I said before, I, I can't engage with the, the loss of a child, but actually the that experience of, um, yeah, of just complete, <laughs> I don't even know, just complete, complete kind of um being being shaken up and being unsure of who you are and what you are and I think I think it depends on that relationship doesn't it I mean um, of both of us we've spoken before about the the nature of our relationships with grandparents um and how special that was for us but um sorry that was a bit of a I, can you remind me of your question again yeah I was just saying you know how has your your experience of everyday life mm. where you're thinking about the world been changed by the kind of work that you do and the things that you've learned so far yeah absolutely um so I think then 
kind of drawn on that previous experience and then the work that I'm doing helps me to just to to be much more open I suppose to mm-hmm. um the, the the things that are going on in people's lives all around me that I that I just would never know anything about to be much more um caring and compassionate not in a, necessarily in an intentional way but I think it just starts to, to seep into you in a way um and it becomes a form of of who you are and how you act and I, obviously there's a level of that that's um, in our personalities and who we are as individuals but um I think that doing a study the, the type of which I'm doing at the minute um can only help but uh, can only yeah can only help us to really go deeper and not to just look at the surface level and to, to actually maybe even though it might be hard to ask those difficult questions to actually sort of try and really get alongside someone I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Yes, I, I just I hear you saying, you know, to get alongside someone, which I, I think is a nice um, English translation of accompagnement, which is, a, <laughs> a, you know, this concept in French that we've discussed a lot of like, you know, being with somebody in their grief and accompanying them through their loss and being a supportive presence and and things. And I'm really touched actually to hear about your experience in the palliative care unit and how, you know, that really helped you to connect with your own personal story and your own personal connection with the research and things. And I, I wonder, are there any other moments that have really marked your research so far? You know, happy ones maybe, or a <laughs> moment of relief? <laughs> um, do you know what? I, I I just would keep coming back to that experience because it was, yeah. uh, as in, in the palliative care unit, because it was the one thing I think that when I put together my uh, proposal, my PhD funding proposal, that that was the thing that stuck out to me at that stage that I really wanted to do, and and I didn't know if I would get the opportunity. And actually, the 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 sort of it was like a almost a retreat type place in the south of France that I initially had been in contact with, and then that fell through, um, and I didn't quite know what was going to happen was was I going to get the opportunity to go across and then um well I don't I don't believe anything happens by chance but I I, I came across anyway uh the the palliative care unit in Brittany and then wonderfully we had uh Sal Calmenti, who I mentioned earlier on who had done this um this PhD in English and literary studies and understood where I was coming from and, and put together this whole wonderful program for me to be able to really engage with these people and to um and not just the parents, you know, I was, I had meetings with the, like the clinicians, with nurses. I went out on, on visits to different people's homes. I had um, interviews with various different um, like social workers and, you know, the whole kind of multidisciplinary team. And I think, um, although it might be difficult maybe to think, well, you know, Jordan, you read books all day. <laughs> How is that relevant to their, to their life and their story? But actually quite the contrary they were absolutely fascinated to hear what perspective I could bring and then I was just so enriched by being able to be with them and to hear from them and to then implement some of what I was doing into, or what they were doing sorry into into my work and so yeah I think by, by far that's the the highlight of what I've done so far and I, and I would love to have gone back I mean I was invited to go in in March I don't think it's going to happen now so March of next year to um to speak at there they have an annual sort of training and, and research day and the theme of it this year is uh, MOT so um, words sorry (laughs) and uh, yeah in the sense of what can words teach us about grief and mourning and and palliative care and obviously that lends itself perfectly to to what I'm doing but as I say I don't imagine I'll get out of the country for that but it'll be wonderful even just to engage with them online or whatever form it might take. That's that's really fascinating you know and um, 
just thinking about the idea of, you know, words being the topic of this this conference and of your presentation. Like I think we've seen in recent years uh, in particular, a real upsurge in the use of like journaling um, as a, a kind of way to process um, mental health or, you know, even day to day, like just to kind of for people to work through in a way that's accessible to them, things that are going on in their lives. And also it's like, you know, a larger way to kind of process bigger traumas or griefs or anxiety or um, different emotions that we're prone to letting fester. You know, what do you think it is that is so special about that act of writing and the words and their connection to big emotions that that's helpful to people in taking care of their mental health, especially in, in difficult times, like after grief or bereavement. Um, I think there's something, I think there's something about the written word. Um, well, sorry, both written and spoken actually, but I think they have different functions. Um, I'm thinking particularly in, in terms of visual forms, you know, there's so much of our culture now is centered on, on visual arts and um, let's say film and, and sculpture and photo photography and all of those things. You know, we think we, we see so much with our eyes and, and there's, yeah, there's so much of the focus on actually what we take in through our eyes. Um, but actually, I don't think that fits so well with our experience of, of grief. And that might be quite controversial. I don't know. But I think there's something about the word, um, whether spoken or written, that actually goes beyond any form of uh, this is controversial now, but any form of uh, picture or film um, or, e or even a piece of music, I think there's there's an ability of words to capture the absence of a loved one while still bringing them present to us. I think there's um, there's a richness in um, in all the kind of rhetorical features that we use um, in, in the symbolism of the written word and and also in the ability um, for us to to go back, to revisit, to rewrite, um, to to engage on a deeper level with something that was previously written as we read it again, you know, even in our own writing as well as in someone else's. Um, rather, I mean, if you if you try and make the same comparison to a film, you know, do you, do you rewind it back and watch the same scene again? Does that really have the same meaning as taking a pen and paper and, you know, writing all over something of stroking it through, of changing, of engaging, thinking what's the exact word, you know, speaking French of this mot juste, like what actually <laughs> is the, the, the right word, the precise word that we can use for that? And and I don't know, I, I could be wrong, but I don't know that, you know, the the right um, film scene or the right musical note or um, the right um, framing of a picture actually does that for us in the same way. What a beautiful answer. You know, it, I think it, in some ways it maybe depends on what we're attached to and how we creatively express our emotions. But I think you're quite right. There's, there's some kind of magic in the sound of a pen on the page, in the sound of, you know, paper and and a pencil and, you know, rubbing things out, as you say, like, you know, writing it anew, staring off into the middle distance as you try to find the, the right word. You're right. I think there is um, there is something magic and sacred in that. I think perhaps because it's so old, you know, exactly. it's one of our oldest forms of trying to work through things or communicate to others and communicate with the deepest parts of ourself. And uh, I think, yeah. you know, it turns into a different thing than obviously when it becomes a book and that book is published and then, you know, there's people like you doing PhDs on it. Um, <laughs> but I think fundamentally it's still the same. It's a yearning to connect um, and to tell a story. And, you know, since 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 time began, we've been telling stories to each other and for ourselves as a way to express who we are and where we are in the world. And I think, you know, grief and loss change you in innumerable ways as a person. And it's just like you were saying earlier on, you know, you become somebody different. And how do you articulate that difference if not through stories? Exactly. Um, and I think 
No, I think that's kind of where we come back to the link between the written and the spoken word that we were mentioning earlier on as well. So um, that's so much of our storytelling is an oral tradition, you know, so um, it's, it's verbal and then it becomes written afterwards. And so by telling stories and by sharing stories, I think there's something about there's a life in in just I don't know, kind of re reinvigorating someone's memory through speaking about them um, by hearing the name again. I think, as I mentioned earlier on, um, by yeah, by sort of contravening what society might say about pushing that that person's identity to the side, but actually just defying that in order to, to utter their name. And I think that's something that comes through in so many of these these texts. And I think possibly too, that's why so many of them take um, an epistolary form. So they, they write to this deceased child. Um, and it's exactly what you said there, because it's the, the earliest form of kind of written communication, you know, way back before we had uh, text messages and emails and um, Skype calls and all the rest of it, you know, this goes right back to um, to me, as you said, taking a pen and taking time actually as well um, to be with the person that you're writing to. I mean, I think there's there's something incredibly powerful about knowing that what I write on the page today, you know, when I post it and I send it off, someone else is going to receive this paper that's been with me, that's part of me. They're going to read it and then hopefully they're going to give me a response. And I think that's the other thing as well, that there's there's very pretty much always an expectation of some level of response when we send a letter. Um, and so that's what these, in my case, what these parents are looking for. Um, response, not necessarily in the form of, you know, that the child's going to speak back to them or, I mean, it might be in a spiritual sense. Some some parents do think uh, think in that in that sense and they, they find great comfort in that. But um, even just in believing that the child might be somewhere else, another place, perhaps in heaven or, or elsewhere, that they can engage with their parent because they see the parent writing, taking the time to to keep them alive in the memory and in the book and in and in the publication process as well. I mean, that's something I would love. I would love someone to give me an answer to this because I still haven't worked it out. But you know, what is it that drives these parents to move from that very personal journaling uh, phase of writing to publish it? Um, and quite often, I think it's it's um, a desire to to bring a positive out of their negative and difficult experience, you know, so some will use the proceeds from the book to fund new hospital units. Um, that's one case that I know of. Some want to testify to the the strength and the, the, the kind of the valor and the courage of their child through their struggle through with illness. Um, others want to, um, others want to, um, yeah, creates, there's one I'm thinking of now that wants to create a foundation that's going to um, connect with the child so that the parents had a really close relationship with their child through reading. They always read stories and shared stories together. It comes back to what we just said. So they create this foundation that um, is going to help immigrant you know, children who've come across from war-torn countries to France, uh, to Belgium, sorry, I should say that's a Belgian text, um, to uh, to start to learn the French language and to engage and to have a whole new form of life through through the word, exactly what we just said earlier on. It's wonderful. Such a moving answer. Um, that's really lovely. And we were actually just talking about traditions there and things. And I suppose um, my next question that I was really looking forward to asking you was, do you have any research rituals? You know, tell me about like your routine and, and how you're tackling this research project, especially in the current climate. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, I think to be honest, any routines that I did have have kind of gone out the window to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> every every day is just a bit different, and um, as much work as I can get done in any one day is is great. And I've kind of had to learn mm-hmm. to um, 
to be happy with that and to allow myself to to have that time. But I suppose I do like to try and get out for a walk. So I have a little dog, a miniature schnauzer, and I do like to get him out for a walk. Although um, he's quite old now, you see, so we have to be careful how much we walk him. But it is, it's nice yeah. just to get out and stretch the legs a little bit. Um, and I think as well, I've built in much longer breaks now in the day than I ever would before. I think that's quite a helpful thing um, to just take, you know, like a good hour, let's say, out of the middle, in the middle of the day to have a lunch break, which I never, ever would have done before. Um, but You're becoming very French. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> I just, yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, the food's not quite the same, but, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say I have necessarily any specific rituals. I always like to try and... Um, I try and read something every day and well obviously I read every day but I mean like to try and read something really quite um let's say meaty or meaningful that I can really engage with I wouldn't say I know some people that have their day divided up into you know a writing time a reading time and sort of some reflection I don't really I don't have that unfortunately and I, I can't say I even write every day you know and that that's a bit of a difficulty at times but um there is something lovely about having a to-do list which I do and I do it on a whiteboard and just seeing that be wiped out as we go through that, that's probably oh, this, the thing that helps me that this is the best <laughs> so good <laughs> totally and again it goes back to the pen and paper doesn't it exactly. you know be able to like put a tick through or a line through something that you've done absolutely totally and okay so it sounds like you you manage your work-life balance pretty well yeah um i think I think to be fair, I don't really have uh, a choice in that matter. So um, <laughs> I have to, uh, yeah, I have to work around, around routines of the others in the household as well. Um, so that actually is really nice, to be fair. I have to be honest that that keeps me uh, disciplined. So um, it also means that I have a freedom. So if, um, you know, if if perhaps maybe one evening there's nobody else here and I want to work a little bit later, then, then I can do. That's grand. Um, but then I know that the next day, whenever there are people here that actually, you know what, that needs to needs to stop because there are other people here and so um like they need my attention as well so that is yeah that is a real help to me i would say um and yeah i definitely well i tell a lie actually i did have to to do some marking there like a couple of weekends ago but generally speaking i don't i don't ever work at the weekend because i just think we really need that that time we work hard enough during the week that we kind of owe it to ourselves to take those couple of days just to to take a breather and even if i do work at the weekend i try and kind of pet back to myself somewhere else you know Amen to that. Louder for people in the back, <laughs> for sure. And I, I used to be that person, you know, I, I would work out weekends and stuff when I was doing my undergrad and my master's, whatever. I just, I can't do it anymore. I think I'm getting old. Um, I just, I just can't do it. I think you do have to give your, your brain a break, you know, mm. and especially for you. And I suppose this is, this is my last question. It's a corollary to what we're just talking about now. You know, how do you balance out reading sad books all the time? <laughs> so yeah it's so funny isn't it like I, to me they're not sad you know, I knew you were going to say that <laughs> <laughs> um to me now don't get me wrong like I would be lying to say that I haven't got emotional reading some of these texts I mean that would be a complete lie and there are a couple in particular that really every, every time I read it even though I know it's coming and I know the section that it still always gets me um but I think that's exactly that idea of of that story and that written word and the reading so it's all the thing the things that we've been speaking about so far um but yeah, I think I think sometimes you just have to, to draw a line and think, well, that's enough of that for today. Or you have to be, again, you just have to be kind enough to yourself to think, do you know what, I need to take a break from that. But actually, yeah. the next day when I come back, I think, but how much better was it that I find that hard or I find it emotional because actually I got a glimpse, just that little moment of what it must have been like for that parent magnified by I don't know how many times. So, so um, that's always helpful to me. That's so true. I, I'm actually going to badger you for one final last question before we wrap up and I wonder if you could share with me something that you think is 
one of the most important takeaways from the kind of research that you do? In terms of, of grief and mental health yeah. or... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that the biggest thing to say is we need to speak about these things. It's okay to talk about it. And if you feel like you can't speak you know, verbally, you, you don't want, you can't sit down in front of someone or you find you don't have someone maybe in your, your family or friend network that you can sit down with, then as we've been saying all the way along, there's always the page and there's something incredibly freeing about that. I mean, I, I kind of have a little bit of a problem with the idea that all grief writing is cathartic because I don't think it is. I don't think that's always the intention behind why we write. Um, but actually just sharing that, even if it be with a, a page that can't respond back to you, there's something about just getting it out there that's incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you and to talk to you about your research. And, you know, I, I think we, we've spoken about it before. I, I often think that, you know, when, when terrible things happen to us in our lives, um, we become much more vulnerable. And I think when bad things happen to try and make something good about them, good come out of them, maybe it's about being more open and vulnerable with each other and sharing with each other to bring other people on the path. And, you know, it comes back to this idea of accompagnement. And being with other people and supporting them. Thanks so much for being on QUB Voices. It was such a pleasure to have you with me here today. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this month's Researcher Spotlight on the theme of mental health. It's been a pleasure talking to Jordan and I hope you have learned as much as I have about the power of the written and spoken word to heal, to bear witness and to provide solace at the most difficult times in our lives. Don't forget to check out the links in the show notes if you or someone you know are going through a rough time or have experienced bereavement yourself. If you take nothing else from this episode, take Jordan's advice. It's good to talk. Stay tuned for the next QUB Voices episode in two weeks' time. And in the meantime, let us know what you thought of this week's episode on social media or leave a review for us. We're at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify and iTunes. <laughs>